In this third session that we'll be taking, we're going to be looking at uh, the conscience of the kingdom. We've looked at the character of the kingdom, we've looked at the conduct of the kingdom, and we're going to look at the conscience of the kingdom, because the main subject that we'll be looking at is the judgment. The judgment can be seen in a negative uh, vein, or it can be seen in a positive. For example... Uh, if we were to look at Hebrews chapter 2, where the apostle is writing concerning uh, the great salvation, he gives a, a negative connotation of judgment there on those who might be guilty of perhaps uh, neglecting the great salvation. Because it says there, for in verse 2 of chapter 2 of Hebrews, it says, For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see, and there he talks about uh, bad behavior being uh, rewarded. That, that is in a negative con uh, connotation. Uh, he talks about uh, evil getting its just uh, recompense uh, of reward. However, we can also see on a positive note that uh, we are rewarded according to our works. And that is the subject that we're going to be looking at, uh, is this uh, question of judgment and uh, either the rewards or the punishments uh, in relationship to the kingdom. But of course, what is the thing that is going to either accuse us or excuse us? It's going to be our conscience. You see, just as we needed the character of the kingdom to occupy a position of authority in the kingdom to come, the character must be perfected in us to judge us worthy to rule and reign with Christ. But of course, we have to be put to the test. We have to be proven. And as we saw in the last session, we go through trials, tribulations, hardships and what have you, just as the Israelites had to pass through the wilderness to prove them, to see whether or not they were worthy to inherit the kingdom or to not or not, so we see that we pass through the same thing. The conduct uh, was what we were concerned about uh, in the last and how that that will lead to the salvation of the soul. All right, so we're looking at the subject then uh, of um, judgment. Now, eternal life is a gift. We re-emphasize that. Um, eternal life a gift, but the rights and the privileges of the kingdom are a reward. You see, Matthew 5, 12 says, uh, and um, look at that scripture, Matthew 5, 12. It's in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was uh, training his disciples. He trained them on how to be, not necessarily how to do, but rather how to be. And uh, we read in um, verse um, uh, Matthew 5 there and in verse 12, just uh, have a look at that. It says... Uh, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now he's talking about here, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. What is he doing? He's exhorting them there to overcome persecution. 
perse- uh, overcome the tribulation and the persecution. And what it attracts that? It is standing up for righteousness. So he says, do it because and rejoice. Even though you have to go through tribulation and persecution, rejoice. Why? Because great will be your reward in the kingdom. And then in Luke 6, Luke chapter 6 and verse 35, if we turn across to that chapter, Luke 6 and verse 35, um, we'll, we'll take it from verse 34 just to pick up the theme. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit do you have? For even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much back. But he says, I say to you, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the highest. You see, your reward will be great. And every time the word reward is used, it's always got to do with recompense on the fact that they have labored in love. They have merited the right of that reward. One other scripture, have a look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 and verse 8. Uh, this probably would be the, the main uh, scripture that we'll allude to here on this uh, subject of reward. We're looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 8. But just to lead up to it, just to speak of the scene here, uh, in the Corinthian epistle there was um, much, uh, shall we say, division within the ranks of God's people over who they were to follow, who they were to honor. And some were saying, uh, we're of Peter or Cephas. Others were saying, no, 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 we're of Paul. Others were saying, no, 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 we're of Apollos. And that is because they allowed their vision to be clouded by certain doctrinal events or truths. For example, those that said, we are followers of Peter or Cephas, they saw that the final authority lay in central government in Jerusalem, where Peter was one of the main apostles. And so because they had a concept of central government rather than autonomy of the local church, they said, well, we're of Cephas because Jerusalem is final authority. Others were saying, no, we must give faithfulness and allegiance to the man that birthed us and established this church, who is Paul. And so on the faithfulness of apostolic church planting, they favoured Paul as being final authority. Others said, no, 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 we're Grecian. And uh, being Greeks, uh, we must honour, you know, cultural prejudice here. And uh, Apollos, although a Jew, nevertheless was raised uh, in uh, Apollos. And uh, he was a Greek, or at least uh, Greek educated. And so uh, they said, well, we'd be of, uh, we'd be of uh, Apollos, you see, because, um, you know, w- 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 we're, we're favoring culture here, you see, an ethnic church. And so they had division. Others seeing the truth said, we be of Christ. And because of divisions like this, uh, Paul comes in with his teaching and he says here in verse 5 of chapter 3, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. 
So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but it's God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And that is the point that I want to stress here, that each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And that is a principle that we see all the way through the scriptures. God will reward every man according to his labor. And so although we're not saved by works, we are saved for works. And how we conduct those works and the motive by which we conduct them, God will honor us and he will reward us accordingly. All right, now, one of the things that uh, I often get accused of when we preach on the doctrine of kingdom theology and we distinguish between gifts and rewards, that when we start to preach on rewards, people say, oh, but if you preach on rewards, you motivate the people to serve the Lord with the wrong attitude. In other words, they only serve so that they can get the prize. A wee bit like Peter when he said, Lord, we have forsaken all to follow you. What are we going to get there for? But remember how that Jesus cautioned Peter and said, Peter, you follow me with that attitude and you that are first will be last. For many that are first will be last and the last will be called as we were discussing the other night. And if you want to get that tape, I'm sure it will be available to you. But what we see here is God takes into a number of things into account when ascertaining a believer's reward. Uh, it's not just the fact that we serve him that God will reward us because there has to be a number of factors that we have to consider in ascertaining a believer's reward on the day of judgment. And so that day of judgment will be when Jesus returns. And just to substantiate that, go with me, would you, to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. And I just want to read a verse of scripture there from the Lord's own words. Revelation chapter 22. And he says uh, in verse 14, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. All right, now just so that we understand what is said there, I'd like to go back and read from the opening of this chapter because I want you to see that the right of entrance into the city is based on reward. Verse 22, and uh, chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river, a water of life clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, and each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Meaning 
that they have qualified to inherit the throne. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophet sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and I saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not uh, do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Now this is the judgment of the saints at the white right throne, where every man is judged according to his works. And verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. Behold, my reward is with me to give to every man according to his works. Nothing can be clearer. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. And then he talks about those that are outside. All right, so we've established very clearly that God is going to reward the uh, unfaithful and he's going to reward also the faithful. So whether or not we receive rewards of judgment that is in a negative vein or whether we receive the rewards of praise and of honor and of glory all depends upon how we walk, as we said in the last session. But, of course, what will adjudicate how we walk today is our conscience. Our conscience will either accuse us or excuse us, according to our understanding of the word of God. Now, to whom, of course, much is given, much is required. And, of course, that will depend upon our status in God, how long we've been walking with God, how much revelation we understand, and so forth. Because to whom much is given, much will be required. All right, now there are four things that God takes into account in ascertaining a believer's reward. Four things. Four things. All right, what are these four things? The first one is ability. Ability. The second one is diligence. The third one is opportunity. And the fourth one is motive. These are four factors clearly taught by Jesus in parabolic teaching concerning the kingdom of God as to ascertaining a believer's reward. Let us go to the first of these, the subject matter of ability. And uh, we will go to Matthew's gospel and the 25th chapter. Matthew's gospel and chapter 25. And we will look there at the parable of uh, the, uh, uh, the parable of stewardship according to ability. The parable of the talents. 
All right, we're reading from Matthew 25. We'll read from verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like, now these are all kingdom of heaven parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered to them his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went out and traded with them and made another five talents. Likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and he settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord, reminding you, that the kingdom of God is first righteousness, peace, and then joy in the Holy Ghost. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Enter thou into the kingdom of joy. That's what he's saying here. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Now, what do we learn so far in what we have read? You see, the man delivered to every man responsibility according to their ability. And one of the things we've got to realize in our service with the Lord, we are not all of the same ability. Some of us have more ability than others. That is why God sets some in the body of Christ according to their ability. As Paul said in the Corinthian epistle, are all prophets? Obviously not. Are all apostles? Obviously not. Are all teachers? Obviously not. Are all workers of miracles? Obviously not. Do all speak in tongues? Obviously not. That is to do with the gift of tongues, not the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In other words, uh, we are a many-membered body. We are not all of the same ability. Some of us are ten-talent people. Some of us are five-talent people. Some of us are two-talent people. Some of us are one-talent people. We're not all the same. But God will give us responsibility according to our ability. And so uh, otherwise uh, we would see discrimination here. You see, because many say God is no respecter of persons. Yes, that is true, but keep that statement relevant to, to the subject matter of where it's quoted. For example, the doctrine of initial salvation, of being born again. Yes, true. God is no respecter of persons. God does not favor the rich above the poor. God does because in the body of Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither barbarian nor Scythian, there's neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ. And so God is no respecter of persons when it comes to an opportunity to be saved. God would that all men be saved. And in the subject of judgment, Again, God is no respecter of persons, for we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account uh, of our lives uh, before him. 
But when it comes to delegating responsibility and setting people in their place in the body of Christ and allocating giftings of ministry and so forth, God is very much a respecter of persons because God will give to every man according to his ability. And one of the reasons why um, people sit back in the church in self-made seats of redundancy or retrenchment and, and, and because they're tarnished with a, a, a competitive spirit, that because I can't preach like Aunt Pinky or prophesy like Uncle Fuddy, therefore I, I, I will not uh, function in the body of Christ. If I can give a very brief testimony here uh, of the first uh, prayer meeting I ever went to. I was just a young Christian and I was in this very big evangelical church and the pastor met me at the door one day as I was going out of the church and he said to me, Neil, are you aware that we have a a men's prayer meeting on a Tuesday night? I said, no, pastor, I wasn't. This was way back in the days before we had bulletins, you know. And I said, no, pastor, I wasn't. He said, well, we do. The men of the church gather on a Tuesday night at 7.30 and we spend an hour and a half. We have an hour of prayer and we have a half hour uh, word of exhortation from the scriptures. So let me personally invite you. And I said, well, thank you, pastor. And the fact the pastor knew my name really massaged my ego. So I went home and I said to Ruth, I said, my wife, you know, guess what? I said, I got personally invited to a, a men's prayer meeting. Ruth wasn't at church that day. I think she was expecting our first child and was a little bit uncomfortable at the time. And... Um, And she said, are you going to go? And I said, yes, the pastor personally invited me. So on Tuesday night, uh, I quickly uh, came home from work, ate my dinner and showered, put on my uh, suit and down to the church I went. And there must have been about probably 200 men in our church. But at that prayer meeting that night, there were three old men, myself and the pastor. I thought, where are all the other, all the other men? I was very naive at that time. I didn't realize that the prayer meeting was the most popular meeting of the church. (laughs) So just three old men, myself in my mid twenties and the pastor. And so the pastor opened the meeting and he said, well, we'll spend an hour in prayer and then I'll give a word of exhortation for half an hour. He said, let's pray. And the first man got to his feet and he started to pray. Oh, and he prayed with such eloquence, with such beautiful grammar, such beautiful phraseology, words, long words that I'd never heard before, scriptural quotations, oh, par excellence. I said to myself, Patterson, there's no way you can compete with that. Don't you dare open your mouth. And after 15 minutes, that man sat down. 15 minutes, and then he sat down. Then the second man got to his feet. And he started to pray, just like the first man. Beautiful grammar, excellent scriptural quotations, beautiful phraseology, terminology, long words. But did he pray for 15 minutes? Oh, no, not him. The first man prayed 15 minutes. He had to pray 20. (laughs) So after 20 minutes, having defeated the first man, he sat down. And then the third man got to his feet. He was a little different. He took us on a missionary tour of the world. He began in South America, 
in Argentina, then across to Chile, worked his way up through the countries of the continent of South America, through Central America, up through the United States to the Northern Territory of Alaska, Canada, and then across to the Soviet bloc, and then right across Europe, Slavic countries I'd never heard of before, uh, down through Central Asia, across to Southeast Asia. He prayed for every nation, uh, right across, uh, over through the Middle East. Uh, he prayed for countries I'd never heard of, uh, right down through the continent of South Africa, uh, right down through Africa to South Africa. He took us on a world tour that took 25 minutes. By that time, the hour was over. I said, Patterson, what a relief. You didn't have to open your mouth. It took me a long time before I ever went back to another prayer meeting. You see, I couldn't compete with that. But then I, I discovered later on, I don't have to. I don't have to. We're not in competition with one another. We're only in competition with ourselves to do our best. Whatever level that be, whether we be a ten-talent person, a five-talent, a two-talent, or a one-talent, all of us uh, function according to our personal ability. See, God hasn't called us all to be Reinhard Bonnke. God hasn't called us all to be Billy Graham. God hasn't called us all to be John Sung or, or whoever it is. We are who we are. And as long as we faithfully do what God has called us to do, uh, we uh, shall be equally rewarded. Now then, when the first two, one man had been given five. Why had he been given five? Because he had the ability to handle five. And he came back to the master and the master asked him to give an account. And he said, master, the five talents that you gave me, I bought five more. You see, five plus five equals ten. What is the percentage of increase? It is 100%. And then the man that had received two talents, he came before his master and said, master, you gave me two talents and those talents have produced two talents more. You see, Two plus two equals four. What is the percentage of increase? A hundred. Exactly the same. And if the man who had been given one talent had been faithful, he could have said, your talent that you gave me, I got one more with it. One plus one equals two. Also would have been a hundred percent increase. You see, that's what God looks at. Not how much ability we have, but what we do with the ability that we've got. Are we putting it to work one hundred percent? And because these first two, the man that had received five and two, both put their talent to work at 100% and produced a 100% yield, they both received exactly the same reward. And the man that received one talent would have got the same had he been equally as diligent. But sad to say, because he was tarnished with a competitive spirit and felt that he couldn't compete with the others and feared his master, he dug a hole in the ground and he buried the talent. And when his master came back, he said, here, here's the talent you gave me. You've got it back. No loss, but no profit either. And... Uh, God, or at least the master, called him a wicked and a slothful servant. And he commanded the other servants to bind him, hand him, foot, and cast him into outer darkness. Now this introduces a subject now, the subject of outer darkness. You see, what is outer darkness and who goes there? You see, a lot of people think, oh, in that story, uh, the man that had the one talent was an unbeliever. No. God never gives responsibility to unbelievers. He only gives responsibility to members of his church, those that are born again. 
That servant was a servant of his master. He had been entrusted with responsibility. And so from that we learn that Christians are cast into outer darkness. And I want to go one step further and I want to say only Christians are cast into outer darkness. Why do I say that? Because the unbeliever has never left outer darkness. Because when we got saved, what happened? The Bible says he has translated us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Isn't that true? So when we got saved, we were taken out of darkness and brought into light. And to be cast into outer darkness, we must be in the light. You can't cast somebody into darkness that's already there. To cast somebody into darkness, they must be in light. How did we get into the light? We were delivered from the power of darkness and brought into his marvellous light. And so on that basis, then, I want you to realise it is the believer that's cast into outer darkness. And, of course, many people say, well, what then is outer darkness? We'll come to that uh, later on if we get time. But primarily, just quickly, it is to be exempt from entrance into the Messianic kingdom for the thousand years. And that was what Paul was fearing when he said, I keep my body disciplined so that having preached to others, I myself do not become a castaway or disqualified. Disqualified from what? From entrance into the messianic reign of Christ and end up being cast into outer darkness and living not again until the thousand years are finished. We'll come to that in the great judgment shortly. And then we see, therefore, that the first thing God takes into account is ability. And we don't all have the same ability. The second thing that God takes into account in ascertaining a believer's reward is the uh, question of diligence. Diligence. Now, we pick this up from Matthew, from Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. A similar parable to that of the talents, only this one is the parable of the pounds. Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. And we'll read from verse 11. Now, as I often say, when we read the parables of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven parables, we need to ask ourselves two questions. The first question is, to whom did he tell the parable? And secondly, why does he tell the parable? Now, in this case, he tells the parable to the disciples. But why does he tell the parable? Because they thought the kingdom, what kingdom? The messianic reign of Christ should appear immediately because the disciples had repeatedly kept saying to him, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And so we pick it up now in verse 11 of of Luke 19. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called his ten servants and he delivered to them ten minas and said to them, do business till I come. Verse 15. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to them, 
said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. Have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. And another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you do not deposit, and reap where you do not sow. And the master said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting where I did not deposit, and reaping where I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money to the bank, that I could have come, and I might have collected my own with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to him who has ten minas. Now then, we look at this parable, and what do we see? We see the man, the first one. Now, here we see ten men had been given one minus each. Now, unlike the first parable that we looked at, where he had given differing degrees of responsibility, he gave one man five. Why? Because he had the ability to handle five. He gave the other man two. Why? Because he only had the ability to handle two. But in this parable... There are ten men, and he gives them the same equal amount, one mina each. Which means to say that their ability was equal. All ten had the same ability. All right, but when judgment time came, when they had to give an account, and this is a parable indicating that Jesus is going away to receive for himself a kingdom and to return, and having entrusted to us areas of responsibility, each of us are going to have to stand and give an account of what we have done with what the Lord has entrusted us. And so the first said, Master, the five, the meanest that you gave me has gained five more. Uh, sorry, has gained ten more. Ten more. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. Be thou ruler over Ten cities. And his reward was proportionate to his degree of diligence. Whereas the second man came and said, The minas that you gave me has brought forth five more. Now here we see he was only half as diligent as the first man. Assuming, in this case, that ability was identically the same. For they were both entrusted with the same area of responsibility. And so he said, the one that you gave me only has gained five more. So he said to him, well done, faithful seven. Likewise, you be ruler now over five cities. He only got half the reward of the first man. Why? Because he was only half as diligent as the first man. And remember I told you in the last session that in the parable of the sower, he that bought for 30% did so because he gave 30% diligence. The man that bought for 60% did so because he gave 60% diligence. The man that bought forth 100 did so because he gave 100% diligence. Here, because a man gave 50% diligence, he only got 50% of the reward of the first man. Do you understand the parable here? So God will take into account, first of all, the ability that we have, and secondly, he'll take into account the degree of diligence that we give to that area of responsibility entrusted to us. Now, the third man comes, and he, like the first parable, he feared the master because 
He saw or thought the master was an austere man who collected where he did not deposit. Now, this is not a description of God. God is not a man that reaps where he has not sown or collects where he has not strawed. That is not a picture of God. That was the picture the man imagined his master to be. You see, that was the the servant's concept of his master. There's nothing in the story that actually says the master was like that. It was the concept that this man had of his master. And so he said, all right, if that's the case, out of your very mouth, I will judge you. If that's what you thought me to be, then all the more reason you should have put my money in the bank where at least I could have had my own with a little bit of interest when I return. You see, and he judged him for his laziness and his sloth and his fear. And I want us to realize that uh, the unprofitable servant will be judged. You see, so we've looked at two of the things that God will take into account in ascertaining a believer's reward. Ability and diligence. The other two come from the parable of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 20, which I ministered on on Wednesday night. And to save me repeating that this morning, uh, this afternoon, I would like you to get the tape of that and listen there. But just briefly, in that parable of Matthew 20, not every laborer had the opportunity to work 12 hours. Some had the opportunity to work 12 hours. Some had the opportunity to work nine hours. Some had the opportunity to work six hours. Some had the opportunity to work only one hour and and some three hours. And so we don't all have the same opportunities in life. I have opportunities that you don't have. You have opportunities that I don't have. We each have opportunities differing one from another. We do not all have the same opportunities. God opens the doors and shuts the doors. That is his prerogative. We have the responsibility of taking advantage of the doors of opportunity that God opens up to us. We don't all have the same doors of opportunity. I've had the opportunity to minister, as Kumar was saying, in something like 14 nations this year. Alone. You have not had that opportunity. But nevertheless, that doesn't make me a greater person than you providing that you are faithful in the area of opportunity that God has opened to you. And in that same parable, we also see motive, because there were two ways in which a believer could uh, could serve the Lord. Those that were hired at the beginning of the day were hired on the basis of contract. They did not go to work until they had a contract. You see? But the rest were hired at various points of the day, and they were hired on the basis of trust because the master had said, go work in the vineyard, and that which is right, I will pay you. And Jesus told the parable because Peter had said, Master, we have forsaken all to follow you. What are we going to have? You promised the rich young man treasure in heaven. What are we going to get for having forsaken all to follow you? And that's why Jesus told the parable. And either we can serve the Lord out of the basis of contract and end up last, or we can serve the Lord out of the basis of trust. In other words, what motive do we serve the Lord? And a lot of people are in ministry solely for the position, for the money, for the fame, for the glory, for whatever reason. 
But there's only one reason God will accept. We serve him because we love him. No other reason. We're not in a position to bargain and make contracts with God. Lord, heal my incurable disease and I'll serve you. Lord, save me from bankruptcy and I will serve you. No, no, no. God wants unconditional surrender. What if he doesn't heal your disease? What if he doesn't get you out of bankruptcy? You see, are you not going to serve him? God doesn't want us to put conditions on our service. You see, he wants us to serve us because we love him, whether he rewards us or not. Now, God will reward the faithful, but providing the motive is right. And so we have seen four things that God takes into account in ascertaining a believer's reward. They are ability, diligence, motive, and opportunity. And providing all things are equal, then we shall receive reward. There are two other examples. The man without the wedding garment in Matthew 22, 1 to 14. The man without the wedding garment. In Matthew 22, we read how that many were bid to the wedding feast. And there was a man without a wedding garment. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, he was bound hand, foot, and cast into outer darkness. Unfair judgment because, you know, perhaps the man was poor and couldn't afford a wedding garment. No, we've got to understand Jewish culture back in Bible times. It was the responsibility of the host to supply all his guests with a wedding garment. That was part of the deal in a wedding feast. And, a, and some say, well, he, he probably got his invitation very late because those who were bidden, first of all, were proven to be unworthy. So go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in because he came in too late. He didn't have time to go home and change. Rubbish. A wedding feast lasted for seven days. Seven days. He had plenty of time to have gone home and changed. But there was no need to. Why? Because in a Jewish wedding feast, the, the host would provide everyone with a wedding garment. He did not avail himself of what had been provided. He'd snubbed his, his nose at it. And, and for that reason, because he had made light of God's provision, he was bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness, the same place as the man, unprofitable servant, uh, from the parable of uh, the talents. Then we have one other example, the five wise and the five foolish virgins, also a judgment concerning the kingdom. Now, all these scriptures have to do with judgment. Jesus coming back, calling his servants to give an account of their ministries while here on earth. And the five foolish virgins, now they were virgins, the sign and symbol of purity. They were not unbelievers. They were believers. They had oil in their lamps. They had lamps. They had light. They had oil, the anointing. They had all of that, and they were virgins, symbolic of purity. There were five wise, and there were five foolish. And the five wise had an extra supply of oil. In other words, seeing their dependency on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And one of the dangers in ministries is, is having begun well, being totally dependent on the revelation of God to reveal his word to us and the anointing of the spirit that we revert back to our own personal abilities and endeavors. And the five foolish, their lamps went out. Why? Insufficient oil. 
And I want to see that this is indicative of many Christians. They run well for a time. They burn well for a time, but then they burn out. And Christians will do that. They'll either burn out, drop out, or, or fall out of ministry. You see? And why? In this case, they burnt out. Why? Not enough oil. Not enough oil. They burnt out. And they had no more supply. And they went to get oil off somebody else. You cannot ride to glory on a borrowed anointing. You cannot ride to glory on somebody else's oil. It must be personal. You must have a personal revelation of what you are doing. You cannot get in there on somebody else's coattail, hanging on to their anointing, hanging on to their revelation. You've got to have your own. And the five wise said to them, you go buy for yourself. And it costs something to get that anointing. Prayer and fasting and seeking God, meditating on his word day and night to bring the anointing on that word. Any clown that's been to Bible school and studied uh, homiletics can put together a sermon. But whether it's anointed or not (laughs) is another matter. You see? And so from that point of view, we see the five foolish virgins... uh, were cut out from the feast. They were left and banished to outer darkness. You see, that is the severity of the judgment. All right, now what has this got to do? You see, with us. All right, all of us are called to serve. We talked about that in the last session. But the day will come when we're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of that which we have done. And I want you to see that rewards can be gained and they can also be lost. Rewards can be gained and they can also be lost. Turn with me in your Bibles, would you please, to Matthew 10, 42. Matthew 10 and verse 42. Jesus speaking to his disciples. But Jesus called them to himself and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, lord it over them and over their great ones, exercising authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. So there Jesus talks about uh, having the right heart, the right motive uh, in servanthood, uh, in uh, serving the Lord. All right. Sorry, I'm reading there from Mark. Now I I should have given you that scripture reference first. Now we will go to to Matthew 10 and uh, the same scripture. Matthew 10. I had them both down there and I gave you the wrong one first. Sorry. Now we will go to Matthew 10 and verse 42 where he says, And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Now why would Jesus say that? Because we've got to read not only what is said, by what is in, but also what is implied by what is not said, or what is implied by what is said. You see, if we give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, in no wise will we lose our reward. Fail to do so, and you will lose your reward. Is the connotation there? 
We must view it from the positive as well as the negative. Have a look at uh, 2 John 8, the easiest book in the Bible to find because it's sandwiched between 1 John and 3 John. So have a look at 2 John on the subject matter of reward. 2 John, and we are reading from uh, verse 8. And there we see John gives a cautionary word to the disciples. He says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we have worked for, but that we might receive a full reward. Now, what is this a picture of? A a faithful servant who has spent many years faithfully serving the Lord, accruing for himself a great reward. But then in the latter years, he slackens off and becomes apathetic, lethargic. And the possibility then of losing those things that he had already worked for. That's the caution. That's the word there. Read it one more time. Look to yourselves. In other words, judge yourself. Take heed to yourself. For he who judges himself will be judged of no man. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we have worked for, but that we may receive a a full reward. All right, one other scripture along that line. Go with me, would you, to Revelation. Revelation chapter 15, uh, chapter 16, sorry. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15. Now again, the subject matter is Jesus coming in judgment. Jesus coming in judgment. And he says, in verse 15 of Revelation 16, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. You see, garments that we have once possessed, the garment of praise, the garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness, all of these things which the faithful overcoming a believer shall be attired with. And remember that the bride who will ultimately be successful was given fine linen pure and white which is the righteousness of the saints. But those garments can be lost. They can be lost. For it says here, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches, that is, who is diligent, and keeps his garments. Now, you can only keep what you've got. If you haven't got it, you can't keep it. So these are those that are in possession of garments. Lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. Those garments can be lost. One other scripture in Colossians 2.18. Could we look there, please? Colossians chapter 2 and uh, verse 18. Colossians 2 and verse 18. And we read here, Let no one defraud you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, and worship of angels, intruding into those things uh, which has not uh, which has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshy mind. You see, it's possible to even be defrauded out of our reward if we follow the false doctrine of false teachers. And so we must be good Bereans and search the scriptures daily and see if these things be so that we do not uh, lose uh, our reward. I want to take you back now and just on a closing point 
on the subject. I want to take you back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Let's go back there where we were in the last session. Hebrews chapter 4. On entering into rest. We had looked at verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. Now we come to the judgment. The judgment. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Now then I want you to see there are two lines of theology that we can follow. The dichotomous line and the trichotomous. Dichotomy acknowledges that a man is body, soul and spirit. But he's made up of physical and spiritual or material and immaterial. Soul and spirit being synonymous terms and interchangeable. That although the soul and spirit might be distinguished, they are inseparable. Whereas the trichotomous view acknowledges man is body, soul and spirit. But soul and spirit not only are distinguishable, but also the possibility of being divided. And at judgment here, and we know it's judgment because if we read the next verse, verse 13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. So this has to do with when we stand before the Lord on judgment day, and the word of God will be the thing that will judge us. Now then, if we are found faithful, if our works are gold, silver, and precious stones, that we have built upon the foundation which has uh, been laid. And the fire of God has proven it to, to be a refining fire. And our gold and our silver and our precious stones pass through the fire. We shall receive great reward. However, if that which we have built on the foundation is wood, hay and stubble, and the fire of the Lord comes upon us, not as a refining fire, but as a consuming fire, and all our works are burned up, we shall suffer loss. But what do we lose? Do we lose our salvation? No. The Bible says, yet he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire, but having lost all reward. You see? And so then, what happens to a believer at that time? Soul is separated from spirit. Now, let me give an illustration here. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, the last word that he spoke was, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up his spirit to the Father. His spirit went immediately to the Father. But his soul went down into Hades for three days and three nights, thus fulfilling the, pro the prophecy of Jonah. And after three days and three nights, in the power of the resurrection, soul and spirit were reunited in the resurrected body. That is the reward of the believer. And so at judgment day, those that have been judged worthy, those that have been, uh, hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, their soul will come up out of the grave. Their spirit will return from the Father where it has been uh, and be united together in the resurrected body, that immortal body to rule and reign and inherit the throne and the kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. That is not a promise to every born again believer just because you're born again. It only those whose works are judged to be gold, silver and precious stones. But the man who is judged unworthy and the man who suffers loss 
He will hear the words, depart from me, ye worker of iniquity I never knew. But Lord, haven't I prophesied in your name? Haven't I worked mighty miracles in your name? Haven't I cast out devils in your name? Did they do these things? Yes, they did. They had very productive ministries. But you see, it was wood, hay and stubble. They were doing it with a wrong motive. Doing it for the fame, doing it for the glory, doing it for money. You see? And the Lord said, no, that's not good enough. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. What happens to them? The spirit stays with the father for the duration of the thousand years because it's saved. But the soul remains in Hades and comes up in the second uh, judgment, the second resurrection before the great white throne. See, the Bible says the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. Then he stands before the great white throne of judgment when the Lamb's book of life is opened and those whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life are banished into the lake of fire. But that's implied that many in that judgment, their names are found written in the Lamb's book of life. But having been denied entrance and a place in the thousand-year reign of Christ, spending that thousand years in outer darkness, remaining in the grave, soul separated from spirit, because there was no immortal body for them. There was no resurrection of that first uh, resurrection for them. But I know that many of you have been told that all believers come up in the first resurrection. Well, if that's the case, God bless you. I don't think so. And so, uh, in other words, soul. See, the word of God will judge us, separating soul from spirit. All right, our time is up. What have we looked at? We have looked at the character of the kingdom, how that we're called to have the, the, the character of Jesus perfected in us. We've talked about the conduct of the kingdom, that we are to bring forth the fruit of righteousness by which we shall be rewarded. We've talked about the judgment, the conscience of the kingdom. Let your conscience be like Paul. I ever exercise myself, said Paul, to have a conscience uh, void of offense before God and men. Let your conscience judge you and so that you might uh, stand before God on judgment day and hear those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And I trust those are the words that you will hear. God bless you.